the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Acts. If we just listen to people and then we look for the entry point, that's what Paul did, and it is a good example for us. And then number three, we lead them to God, an understanding of repentance. Lead them to an understanding of who God is. Now, you, you may not have to go through all eight like he did. You know, he went from creator, life giver, giver father, sovereign, divine. I mean, he, you know, he's going. But if you just present the Lord here, and in the simplest terms, God will help you. And God will use you. And by His Spirit, He will give you the words to just share and communicate who God is. Sharing the gospel message isn't a one-size-fits-all speech. Sure, some people can say the same exact thing and affect many lives all at once. But what about one-on-one? Every person is unique, and so your approach to giving them the good news of Jesus should be too. Pastor Gary will share today how the Apostle Paul talked to others about faith and how he allowed the Holy Spirit to lead him. You need to as well. Let the Holy Spirit give you the words and the timing that will fit the situation you're in. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Acts, chapter 17, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Now, Epicurean thinking, Epicureanism, was adapted from the teaching of Epicurus, who lived between 341 and 270 B.C., and who taught that pleasure is the sole intrinsic good, but not wild pleasure. It had to be tempered pleasure, a simple pleasure. Tranquility, knowledge, and friendship was considered simple pleasure, and that was the sole intrinsic good. And so Epicurean philosophy was seek simple pleasure, seek knowledge, seek friendship, seek tranquility. They actually saw that sex and rich food were were excessive and did not fall within Epicurean definitions of simple pleasure. So they thought you should abstain from those things. That was Epicurean philosophy. Stoicism, Stoicism basically taught to be free from suffering through logic and reason. So if we're just, you know, if we're logical and we, we just exercise reason, we can avoid all kinds of suffering and all kinds of bad things. So this is the kind of thought that was rampant during the day. Epicurean, Stoic philosophy and thinking. And here comes Paul into this into all of this. You know, the the intellectual capital of the world, Epicurean thinking, Stoic thinking, and so here he is. Now, what we're going to see here in his response, because they're asking him, he goes here to the hill of Ares, to Areopagus, 
and they, they start asking some questions. They're like, you know, uh, verse 19, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to, you know, we haven't heard this. Now, they're just thinking in terms of we want to broaden our enlightenment. You know, we want to learn some new things because that's who we are here. Uh, but but so it's not like they have this sincere understanding or even desire about salvation. They just think that Paul's got some the latest and greatest philosophies. But they want to know. And so they ask him to come and to share. So in verse 22, Paul's going to share from verse 22 down to verse 31. So uh, let me read it, and then we'll come back and look at it together. So verse 32, Paul then stood, sorry, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his his offspring." Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now that's, that's his whole speech. He's going to get interrupted here by some sneering, but just for, before we see that, uh, let's just kind of break down his speech. He's sharing, he's sharing with them about the Lord. But I want you to notice he's sharing with them from a different angle. Because these people are Greeks, they're Gentiles. It's different. When he goes into a synagogue, he opens up the scriptures. He reasons with the Jews based on a language that they understand. And he opens up scripture because it's relevant to the Jews and they understand scripture. And so he reasons from that angle. But when he goes to the Areopagus here, he has to reason from a completely different angle. These people don't know the Bibles. They don't know the Old Testament scriptures. They don't understand the truth about Jesus, about God as creator. And so Paul has to give them a synopsis of who God is and, 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 and what he wants of us. Uh, in, in a few short sentences here, to help them get an introductory understanding of God. He's starting from scratch with these people. One of the first things he does here is he walks around and he says, I notice that you have an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And he uses that as the entry point to communicate to them who God is. Because you see, for them, the Greeks, they didn't want to leave out any God and therefore incur the wrath of any god, though they have like 300 gods. So what they did was, they were like, you know, in case we leave out a god that we don't really know his name or his function or her name or her function, we're just going to make this altar that says to an unknown god, and then we'll cover our bases. 
That's what they did. So they had this altar to an unknown God, just to be safe. Like, in case we left anybody out, we don't want anybody to be mad. We don't want the gods to be mad with us. And Paul uses that to capitalize on presenting the truth of who God is. He says, all right, you have this altar here with this inscription to an unknown God. Let me tell you who the unknown God is that you don't know about. And he begins by sharing with them, and this is kind of interesting. I looked at these verses here, and and there are eight, I think it's eight, eight different ways, titles, uh, context that... Paul presents God as to them. It's, it's really pretty fascinating that in, in a few short sentences here, he presents God as creator in verse 24, because he says, who made the world and everything in it. He presents him as life giver. He said in verse 25, he gives all men life and breath and everything else. He presents him as sovereign in verse 26, because he said he determined the times set for them, for everybody. He presents him as personable, In verse 27, so that men would seek him, reach out for him, and find him. That's a personal God. He presents him as father because he talks about how since we are his offspring, in verse 29. He presents him as divine. He calls him the divine being in verse 29. He presents him as judge. He calls, he says that he will judge the world with justice in verse 31. And he presents him as a miracle worker because It says in verse 31, he has given proof by raising him, referring to Jesus, from the dead. And he presents God this way. Now, some are critical of Paul here. You read some commentaries, some Bible commentaries and some scholars, they're critical of Paul at this this point here. And I just want to point it out, and I want to respond to the criticism that's out there. Not that Paul needs me to defend him, but, but just to kind of give perspective here. Some are critical of, of what Paul, how he presents the gospel here, because he doesn't mention Jesus by name, and he doesn't preach the cross. And some will look at 1 Corinthians 2, you don't need to turn there, But if you'll notice in your Bibles, chapter 18 is subtitled, In Corinth. He goes from from Athens to Corinth, and when he's in Corinth, uh, his approach is different, and it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let me just read to you. Listen to what he says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 4. He says, When I came to you, brothers, to you in Corinth, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. He refers to wisdom three times in those verses I just read. He talks about the power of the Holy Spirit and not relying on wise and persuasive words, not taking comfort in his eloquence, but really knowing that it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And some look at, at, at 1 Corinthians 2, what I just read, and say that when Paul moved on to Corinth, he... he felt like he was a failure in Athens because it tells us, if if you read further now, chapter 17, go back to chapter 17, verse 32, it says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. King James says they mocked him. But others said, well, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. 
And it says in verse 34, A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And some look at that and say, well, it wasn't very fruitful. Only a few believed Dionysius, Damaris, and a number of others. And that the reason Paul wasn't very fruitful is because he really didn't preach Christ crucified. So then when he moves on to Corinth, he says to the people of Corinth when he writes the letter in response, he goes, you know what? When I got to Corinth, I changed my, my approach. I, I, I didn't want to rely on eloquence and wise and persuasive words. It's just the work of the Holy Spirit. Friends, listen, it is always the work of the Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't just think that we are clever people that can put words together and then it's through our cleverness that people will get saved. I think those who say that Paul's ministry was not very fruitful and thus he was a failure in Athens are mischaracterizing the ministry of Paul here on Areopagus. The reason I say that is because people do get saved here. Who are we to say how many should get saved? Who are we to evaluate a man's ministry because... A few got saved or hundreds got saved. The fact of the matter is people believed here in Athens. And I think that what he did in Athens is, a, is an important lesson for us in this sense. When you look at how he shared the truth here, how he shared the gospel, it, it teaches me four things. And I, sh- I share this with you because I think this is practical wisdom for us in how we communicate with people that we work with, that we know, or, or, or people that be, are strangers to us. You know, how do we approach even the stranger that we don't even know? And there are four things I see here in this text here. First is, listen to their story. If you, if you want to be effective in communicating the good news, the gospel, you first have to listen to the other person's story. You have to know them and understand them, their worldview, their perspective. You have to listen to them. You have to get to know them. If we expect to connect and communicate in a way that people will respond and hear, it begins with understanding a little bit about who they are. Listen to them. Appreciate their worldview and their perspective. Because if you don't, you may never necessarily connect the gospel. Let me give you a bad example, okay? Many years ago, one of the first mission trips that we took as a church was to St. Vincent. But one of the first people we started supporting, dear friends of ours, Verla and Norma Blake, who have been in, in ministry in St. Vincent and throughout the Grenadines in the West Indies now for some like 40 plus years. And uh, Verla and Norma have been here on several occasions. Verla's even preached here many years ago and long-standing friends, okay? So they invited us to come down and bring a team that would basically lead VBS, Vacation Bible School. And it was just a good way there on the island. of, And it's a beautiful island, St. Vincent. It's in the Caribbean, you know, praise God, somebody's got to go. And so, you know, we asked, who wants to go to the Caribbean? Well, everybody wanted to go, you know, share the gospel. But anyway, uh, so we went. And, um, and one of the things we did was we took, um, as a little craft thing for the kids to make, how many of you have seen those, those colorful beads that you, that you can put on a little bracelet and tell the story of the gospel? 
How many of you know what I'm talking about? The beaded bracelets. Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about. So it's like, I don't know how many beads, but like there's, there's a black bead that reminds us of like the, the sin and how, you know, the, the, the sin in our lives. And then there is the, uh, there's a white bead when you ask Jesus to forgive your sins and then your heart is cleansed and you be, and forgiven and purify, you know. And then, and then the blood of Jesus. There's a red one in there about the blood of Jesus. There's a green one in there about new life. There's a gold one there about streets of gold and going to heaven. And so you, you Put this string the whole thing together. Let me tell you something. Our our team that went were the only white people on that island. First of all, it's a tropical island, okay? They've never seen snow. When you start saying, well, this little white bead here is about snow, and God will make your, your sins white as snow. They've never seen snow. So it like it was going right. These kids are like, we've never seen snow. Went right over their heads. And then I have to be honest with you and tell you this, and it was quite embarrassing. I don't know who came up with the whole colored beads things, but it's not very culturally sensitive or culturally relevant. I remember one child in the corner of the pavilion where we were sharing the story with, rubbing his arms. I said, What are you doing? He says, I don't I don't like the blackness because it, it my life is sinful. And I said to our team, We're not doing this craft anymore. It just is culturally completely irrelevant. You know, by the way, I don't know where that came up. The Bible in Isaiah 118 says, Though your sins were as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We should have a red bead to talk about our sinfulness, not a black bead. Because quite honestly, it can be offensive in the wrong culture. So I don't even like the whole bead thing anymore, all right? Uh, But it was completely irrelevant. The black bead they, they stumbled over, the white bead they'd never even seen. And so, in other words, if you don't understand and listen and recognize the person you're sharing with and their cultural reference point and their worldview and their perspective, you may not even be able to connect with them. Paul gets up there and he says, I just want to explain to you this altar that you have here to an unknown God. I'm connecting with you culturally. I want you to know I'm, I'm honing in on what you are thinking about and I want to identify this unknown mysterious God to you. So we need to listen and understand the worldview and the perspective of the people that we're trying to witness to or share the gospel with. Otherwise, you're going to be culturally or personally irrelevant. Then the second thing is look for a relevant entry point. Look for a relevant entry point. If you listen long enough to where somebody is in their life, you're gonna, if you're careful, you're, you're gonna key in on some things that they're saying that makes you aware of how you can present Christ to address the very thing that they're saying. Now, I don't wanna make Christianity sound like you know, it's, it's for a bunch of broken people. But in a sense, it's for a bunch, bunch of broken people. But I say that because a lot of times the clearest and quickest entry point into somebody's heart is, is when they're going through some period of brokenness. Death, divorce, disease, that they've experienced the loss of a loved one through death. That maybe they've gone through a divorce. Maybe they, they have, you know, something, some bad um, diagnosis. Uh, they've lost their job. Um, you know, that financially they're having hardships. Difficulties in life have a way of getting us to the bottom of our stubborn, proud selves. So it isn't that, you know, we only look for the bleeding heart because we want to try to take advantage and, you know, zero in on, oh, you, oh you're going through a divorce, let me tell you about Jesus, okay? Listen, 
right motives, right intention, right way. I'm simply saying that when we go through difficulties in our lives, that broken experience often gets us to the bottom of ourselves where we are finally open to hearing the truth about how God loves us and how Christ died for us. Not trying to suggest we should be pushy salesmen that just try to take advantage of people in, in their brokenness or in their weakness. I'm simply saying, and most of us can identify with this if you've come to know Christ, sometimes it took a crisis to break us until we finally realized how much we need the Lord. And if you listen carefully to people's lives, most people walking around in this world recognize their brokenness. They just don't want to articulate it like that. And if we can have empathy and compassion for where they are and then share Christ looking for that entry point. But again, it's not always for the brokenhearted. You, you know, people who are very successful, who are very accomplished, who, who have achieved a lot. You know, the entry point for them is, who do you think has blessed you like this? Deuteronomy 8.18 says, it is not we who have accomplished all this. Do not think that it is your own skill or the work of your hands that has produced this wealth for you, but it is God who has done this for you. So sometimes people who are very successful just need to be gently asked, you know, where do you think all this success came from? Who do you think has taken care of you? Who do you think should get credit for where you are in your, in your life? And help them to see their, their own entry point even through their success. But in other words, if we just listen to people and then we look for the entry point, that's what Paul did and it is a good example for us. And then number three, we lead them to God, an understanding of repentance. We lead them to an understanding of who God is. Now, you, you may not have to go through all eight like he did. You know, he went from creator, life giver, giver father, sovereign, divine. I mean, he, you know, he's going. But if you just present the Lord here and in the simplest terms, God will help you, and God will use you, and by His Spirit, He will give you the words to just share and communicate who God is. But please notice the word repent is there in verse 32, sorry, verse 30, when He says, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent just simply means that you're heading in one direction, and you acknowledge that you're heading in the wrong direction, and you turn 180 degrees in the other direction. That's what repentance really is. It's, it's recognizing you're on the wrong path. And you need to do an about face and turn to God. And so we have to just not only present God in terms of who he is, but we have to lead people in an understanding of there's a response to this. There's a response to this. That we're all sinners and we need God and we need to repent and we need to invite him into our lives. And then the last one is we leave the results to God. You and I, nobody gets somebody else saved. And I, and I love, by the way, when people are brand new Christians who have no church background whatsoever, I, I, I love the innocence of this, but I have to gently correct sometimes. People will come to me and say, I just want to thank you, Pastor Gary, for saving me. Now, I know what they mean by that, and it is, and it is refreshing in their, in their ignorance, but I have to just gently say, okay, wait. I didn't save you. I just led you in a word of prayer. It is God who saved you. It is the Lord who did his work in your life. I just happen to be the one to come along and, and be the mouthpiece for what God wants to do in your life. But it is he who saved you. But we have to recognize that God is the one who, who ends up saving people. God is the one who gives the increase. Some plant, some water, it is God who gives the increase. And the increase here was, verse 34, a few men became followers of Paul and believed believed in Jesus, okay, they, they became, you know, those who were students of Paul, not that they put their faith in him, and among them Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, a woman called Demarius, and a number of others. Look, folks, pray 
and ask God to give you open doors and opportunities and then just let Him use you. Don't, don't worry about how effective you think you are or are not. The Holy Spirit is the one who will help you. Just be the vessel that is available and used by the Lord. Amen? And let's leave the results to Him. Hope is an open ocean Jumping in you'll find the cornerstones Your connection run towards your new life The book of Acts is awe-inspiring as you see the Christian church take off. You see these frightened disciples who had scattered, rallied together, and then spread out beyond their borders. It takes great faith to do what these believers did, just like it takes great faith to spread the word today. How are you engaging with this series so far? Do you have any questions or concerns? If so, feel free to email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd be happy to hear your prayer requests too. Are you living in or visiting the Leesburg, Virginia area? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find our service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and links to download our mobile app. Just look under the Teachings tab. Once again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of Acts that we hope inspire you. We look forward to you joining us again here on Cornerstone Connection. J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.